When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Hey everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Confidential, a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Now, what do these shows have in common? In the thick of it, Smack the Pony, Veep, Have I Got News For You, and Succession. Well, the answer is Georgia Pritchett, the multi-award-winning television writer and producer who I've been dying to talk to, and I finally got the chance. Georgia Pritchett just released a memoir called My Mess is a Bit of a Life, Adventures in Anxiety, a fascinating, personal, and funny collection of stories and memories. A look into how her background, her self-described anxiety and difficulties expressing her feelings have formed her to become one of the best screenwriters working today. Georgia Pritchett is currently a writer and co-executive producer on HBO's Succession, now in its third season. She was brought on to Succession by creator and showrunner Jesse Armstrong after the two had worked together on Armando Iannucci's series Veep. Besides Succession, she has her hands full writing. Her new miniseries, on which she is the showrunner, The Shrink Next Door, starring Paul Rudd and Will Ferrell, just premiered on Apple TV+. And I heard she's working on something with Veep star Julia Louis-Dreyfus, as well as the TV version of the film Galaxy Quest with Simon Pegg, plus a Cold War-era story to be directed by Chernobyl's Craig Mazin. And she still had time to talk to me. We talked sexism in the industry, how her background shaped her writing, and she takes us right in to the Succession Writer's Room. Now, if you hear a slight humming a few times during the interview and wonder what that is, well, for some added drama, George's neighbors were cutting down a tree. Let's start by listening to a clip from Season 3, Episode 3 of Succession called The Disruption, written by, among others, Georgia Pritchett. That rat sets one foot inside this building. I'll punch him in the nose. I think that's the grown-up solution that keeps everyone happy. Kendall is on a mission, and he's not going to stop unless we take his legs out. There are a million knives being sharpened. Probably need to be a face or two behind bars. What's your angle? I come from a world of image. Family business does not look good for them. so much for joining me. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. So between your new book, My Mess is a Bit of a Life, Adventures in Anxiety, Succession Season 3, The Shrink Next Door, and just life in general, I get anxious just thinking about what your life must look like (laughs) right now. Are you dealing with things okay? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, thank you. I'm I'm never happier than when I'm writing. So um, yes, no, it's it's a joy to be working on them. lots of things at once that uh, are really exciting to me. So that's great. I wanted to start with something that I found was really astounding in the book. 
You've written some of the most acclaimed TV shows in, in decades, but you write that for 25 years, there was not another woman in the writer's room. Tell me about this. Yes. Well, I mean, when I started here, I was the only woman. I thought, oh, that, that will change soon. <laughs> and, and it just didn't. Um, and of course, you know, I love all the men that I work with. They're fantastic. And I didn't know any different. Um, so I just accepted it, really. Uh, and it was only when I went to work, as you say, in the States, that I was in a room with not just one, but two whole other women. <laughs> and um, Complete whole women. <laughs> yeah. There were three of us. There was like 300% more women than I was used to. But, yeah, it was really, it sounds a bit silly, but I can't tell you how extraordinary that felt and how um you know how validating it's very to sit opposite someone who looks a bit like you and dresses a bit like you and has kind of similar frames of reference or life experiences is really comforting encouraging good for your self-esteem and so I sort of suddenly realized what I'd been missing all, all that time and it made me realize, wow, this is what it's like to be a white man every single minute of every day. Because, you know, when they walk in any room or turn on the TV or what, you know, they see themselves reflected yeah, back at themselves. And it's, and it's so important. And I'm very aware of the huge numbers of people in the world who never see themselves reflected back at themselves. And that is really hard. And that, you know, I hope that will change because we all benefit from diverse stories from authentic voices and that's you know we need more of that and in terms of the writing or the writer's room in general did you feel a difference I did yes I think you know I think for decades the majority of you know television and film has been written by white men white privileged men and so you get a similar kind of story What's interesting is we're hearing more from women, which is great, but the reason is that actors, women who, who feel they're not being written the right, you know, the right parts that they want to play are turning to writing and writing themselves the parts. And then that's when you get things like Fleabag or I May Destroy You, incredible stories um, that couldn't be written yeah, by, by men. Um, and I just think we all benefit from that. Um, but that still, I guess, is that's great, but it still comes from a place of discrimination. It still comes from a place where a woman is saying, I'm not getting the parts that I want and that I see my male colleagues getting. But it's, it's all helping. And, um, you know, and I think what's clear is it's not just women who love those shows and those stories. Everyone enjoyed Fleabag and I May Destroy You. I mean, they were incredible television. Which are British shows. One of the things you write is that the Americans have actually been better at having female leads, especially in their comedies. I mean, you wrote for Julia Louis-Dreyfus in Veep, um, which is, is different from Britain or British television. Yeah, yeah. It's very interesting. I, I, I wish I understood it, but yes, certainly, you know, the states from the beginning of sort of TV comedy have had women leads, like, you know, right back to Lucille Ball and Mary Tyler Moore and Rhoda and 
then Roseanne and Ellen and on and on. They've always had women in the leads. They've always had women writers, not as many, but they have had them. Whereas uh, in Britain, I don't know if it's a British thing or a European thing, we just haven't had that. Women have tended to play nags or slags. They've been the sensible girlfriend or the nosy next door neighbours and they've come and um, delivered the setup line and watched the men deliver the punchlines. And um, yeah, so we just, we haven't sort of had women in those lead roles and, you know, I mean, it's chicken and egg. Is that because they, it was male writers or, you know, it's something, you know, even now in the UK, our kind of most successful sitcom is a man dressed up in a dress playing a woman and you just think great it was a woman in a dress I don't know maybe maybe we can think that well hopefully the two you mentioned you know with Fleabag and Destroy You because it's an incredible series that there's a change coming about but I want to go back to your family which I love how you describe in the book Um, so your grandfather was the novelist and critic right V.S. Pritchett your Mm -hmm. father was a journalist and your mother was an author too Josephine if you were to write like a let's say the Thanksgiving scene that you wrote in succession. I know you don't, wouldn't do Thanksgiving, but what would your family look like on an evening like that or sound like, I should say? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're great. And it's very, um, they're all very funny and entertaining. We all like telling stories. Um, and they all have nicknames, as I say in the book. My dad is the patriarchy and <laughs> my mum is the witch. Um, and I think, you know, I was very lucky to be born into a family where writing was an option, you know, where, where it was presented as this is a proper job <laughs> because so many people aren't oh, yeah. in that situation. Um, and I think, you know, really that wanting to be a writer is pretty much the only thing I've never been confused about. So I knew I wanted to write from before I could even write, I was I was speaking stories into a tape recorder. They were all pretty much all about budgies who'd fallen out of their nest and were trying to find their way home, which is a a niche genre that hasn't (laughs) taken off in the way I'd hoped it would. But but, um, I think then... It's not too late. (laughs) It's not too late. People will come around. Um, So then the question really was, like, what could I write? Because I thought, well, I can't be a novelist like my grandfather, because I couldn't write prose because I don't know enough adjectives and I don't like describing things. So I thought, well, I know I can't do that. And I know I can't be a journalist like my dad because I don't really care about facts. Although these days, hey. Yeah, um, who does, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I couldn't sort of think what, what I could do. Um, and then uh, my mum, who's, you know, quick to point out my faults um noticed that I would you know I loved watching tv comedy and sketch shows and stand up and sitcoms and I would memorize huge chunks of comedy and and recite it in what apparently was a very irritating way so um (laughs) this this made me think oh maybe dialogue is is my thing um and yeah, so that's that's. Uh, she was right. She was right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I love it. <laughs> yes, I, I mean, very sort of ex- eccentric British 
kind of um, family and uh, and then I went to a very eccentric school. So yeah, I had uh, I had quite a different upbringing, I think, than certainly than a lot of my friends. Um, or the Roy's uh, that we'll get to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I understood the level of your anxiety when reading that you actually were abandoned by your imaginary friend. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what I understood. There was, but tell me a little bit about how your anxiety manifested or, or manifests, if you will. Yeah. I mean, I just was, I just worrying seemed to be something I was good at from a very young age. And some of my earliest memories are me worrying about things. And, um, so yes as you say I had an imaginary friend who uh I worried sort of didn't really like me and she often wouldn't turn up to our play dates that I'd arranged um I used to worry about all sorts of things used to kind of leave notes for my parents about where things were in case I died in the night and used to worry I had a, a quite a long-standing worry that um I would develop a condition called Robertson's giant limb where one limb goes massive so I was always measuring my legs against each other convinced that uh, one was growing out of proportion but uh yeah it was, it's just always been with me it's um it's one of my gifts yeah, you call it a gift. So have, this has helped you as a writer? I think there's definitely a link between anxiety and having a good imagination, because I think you just can imagine all sorts of things happening that other people can't. And obviously, you know, having a good imagination helps with writing. Um, so I don't know if it's helped or, or hindered me. It's um, probably both but I've sort of learned to accept it. As a parent myself, I know how rough it is when your children aren't doing great, then you're not doing great, basically. Mm. And you had years of turmoil with your eldest son going from specialist to specialist, suspecting that he may have autism, which you write about. I thought the, the early meetings with doctors were incredibly harsh, some of the, the responses that you got from them. How was that for you? That was really hard because I think, as you say, when you're in a situation, you know, when the, when you know there's something wrong with your child, it's it's devastating, and and you just want to put it right. And when you sort of turn to experts for help, you're in a very very sort of vulnerable position, and you're sort of at their mercy, really. And yeah, I mean, considering it wasn't that long ago, some of the kind of responses felt pretty Victorian in that, you know, one person told me, one, you know, medical expert told me it was because I hadn't bonded with him at birth. And I think what saved me there was just knowing how my whole life really I'd longed for a child and had spent years striving to have children. And, you know, there was no doubt in my mind when he was born that I utterly loved and bonded with him um and that hadn't been a problem I know sometimes that that doesn't happen to people and that's you know there's no judgment or blame but I'm just very grateful that that hadn't happened to me because 
you know, had had there been a little seed of doubt in my mind, I think her saying that would have been very dangerous. Um, what have you learned about communication through your son? I understand from the book that everything they said would happen really didn't. Yes, they they said he would never talk, and now um, he doesn't shut up. I'm going <laughs> to sue them. But, it, I mean, that's a really good question because he didn't really start speaking until he was six or seven. Um, and and I was very aware of, you know, my whole world is about words and here I am with my son and words aren't working. They're not an option in terms of communicating. And that was a really difficult situation because I just thought well I'm I'm the worst person in the world to to be the mother of this child because I'm just so about words um but it is incredible how you adapt he, it you know singing really helped so words did sort of come into it that way I I sang non-stop I I um sounded like Tina Turner on a 200 date tour um and I do other things I'd sort of um take photos with his toys and sort of funny kind of set up kind of funny little scenarios that he that would sort of engage him um and it was it was a challenge but it was really interesting to realize actually words are just words there's lots of other ways to communicate and then um then for a while when he did start to learn to speak he would do this thing called scripting some people call it scripting, some people call it echolalia, which is where someone says the same thing over and over again or a little bit of something they've heard you say over and over again. And again, that felt like a sort of tailor-made torture to me as, as a script writer that I would say something quite banal, like, <laughs> you know, pass pass me your cup or something, and then for the next five days, all he would say is pass me your cup. So sort of having these things sort of scripted back at you was was really um, odd and sort of realising, oh, he, you know, whereas I use words to communicate, his use of words is not always to communicate. Sometimes it's to sort of soothe himself or comfort himself or process or, you know, a bit like we listen to the same song again and again he likes to say the same thing so it's been a real journey of sort of understanding what words mean to him and what how words aren't always the most important thing and um yeah with succession and veep you have said that i think my writing has improved because i've expressed some of the darkness <laughs> How do you mean by that specifically with those? I think what's interesting about both those shows is that they're about characters who on the surface may seem awful or irredeemable or monstrous in some way. And I think it was really an exciting challenge to sort of dig deep and find their humanity and get the audience to kind of root for them. And I think, you know, I love writing comedy. That's sort of my kind of first love. But I've really enjoyed moving into drama more and um, and writing things that have both sort of lightness and darkness. And I think embracing the complexity of 
human beings and relationships has been very um, interesting as a writer and sort of liberating as a person to really get to explore the kind of difficult parts of us. These these characters are definitely explorable. <laughs> yeah. work. But um, the fact that there's so many British writers um, writing on these specifically Veep, very American political shows, the ver- this version of it anyway. Why do you think that that works so well? I don't know. I mean, we so I worked with Armando on The Thick of It, which was about British politics. And then he is just a genius and knew all about American politics. So wanted to do a sort of um, American version of that. And that was incredibly exciting. But yes, it was all British writers writing in London. Uh, or, the, or England um, and then we would film in Baltimore and then after Armando left after four seasons it became all American writers apart from me writing in LA and filming in LA and then similarly Succession started with a group of British comedy writers writing in London and I think there was some concerns from some people could these sort of scruffy shambolic comedy <laughs> writers pull off a sort of glossy American drama and in some ways we couldn't because we didn't know anything about being rich. We had to get a rich consultant in to come and tell us where we'd gone wrong. And um, it was very funny, his sort of advice to us. You know, we'd written a few scripts and it was like, no, no, you know, rich people don't wear coats. They go from their car to their jet to their building. And yeah, I think it was Jeremy Strong. He was, I think it was him who told me or one of, of your great cast members that one one example was that you don't, duck with the helicopter if a normal oh. like me if I would go on a helicopter and get off a helicopter and and the blades were swirling yeah. I would duck but they said yeah. they were literally born getting off the helicopters they know they yes. won't get their heads chopped off so they, <laughs> they learned to just yeah. as actors to just walk off and look very confident yeah, without yeah, coats. That's a really good <laughs> yeah yeah and I think the things that sort of started, I think, in a way on the thick of it was, it's funny because when I was asked around the thick of it, I sort of felt a bit prim and, oh, I don't know if I know enough swear words for that. Soon it was pouring out of me. <laughs> but I think our sort of aim in the thick of it, Veep and Succession is not to just swear. You know, swearing isn't just used as an insult. It's used rather lofty aim for swearing was to use kind of baroque swearing so very sort of creative descriptive really so so really the swearing is used to describe things so you know often people say oh it's a bit lazy to swear you could think of a more interesting word and I think our aim is no we want to make the swearing the interesting words and we want (laughs) to make it very elaborate and and I think that's quite British you know I think although Veep and Succession are very American shows, as you say, about American subjects. The the sort of dialogue and the swearing is sort of, in its essence, quite sort of British in its sort of construction. But is there something that really doesn't translate? Like when you Brits are in an American writer's room and they're like, no, we didn't get that. <laughs> I mean, some sort of humor. I mean, there's always the odd word. I, I mean, I find from... What I think is has always been great about American shows is that they create characters who are funny and who are trying to make each other laugh. 
And so that's a great way of getting comedy into a show. Whereas for a long time, British comedy would always be laughing at the character because the character was either stupid or incompetent. And we sort of, we're so kind of consumed by self-loathing in, in Britain that we, you know, whether it's sort of Basil Fawlty or Ricky Gervais in the office, we sort of, we tend to just kind of glory in our incompetence and sort of mock ourselves and that's or or have people being funny unwittingly because they're such idiots or so ridiculous and and I think it's much easier to write for characters who we all know and spend time with people are funny and they want to make each other laugh and that is a much easier way of writing comedy and what about the writer's room in general? Is a big difference between an American writer's room and a British one? Yeah, I mean, to, to be honest, we don't really have writer's rooms in the UK. So, uh, you know, there isn't the money. Generally, you just write your own show on your own. You might have a writer's room on like a sketch show or a not for sort of narrative. So although, you know, things like Veep and Succession are written in London, they are American shows, so so we ha- we are. Yeah, so there, you do actually have a American style exactly, writers room yeah. in London. Yeah. Well, hey, podcast listener. My name is Vince, and I'm the host of a show called The RR Show. It stands for Reddit Readings. We're going to sit down twice a week, and I'm going to bring you the most entertaining stories from all of the best subreddits that exist online. Things like malicious compliance, petty revenge, hey, lady, I don't work here. Oh, there's so much more. Lots of great stories and things you won't believe. Like the one time uh, this dude was caught in a bathroom with his friend and he was slapping them because that was the only way that he could actually legitimately help them. A mall cop comes in with a taser. Oh, yeah, the rest is history. It's going to be fun. There is, uh, I don't know, I got like 20 seconds left, so I don't got much more time to tell you another story. But just join me on The RR Show. It's from Evergreen Podcast, produced in partnership with Wessler Media. So The RR Show. Wherever you get podcasts, subscribe today. And uh, it's like an adult story time. Let's hang out together. The RR Show. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, which is great. I want to talk a little bit about this season as well. So when you started on season three of, of Succession, did you guys know the overall arc that you wanted to tell? Yeah, we spend about four months in the room together every day and we we really talk in a lot of detail and work out exactly what happens in every single episode and exactly what happens to every character. And then we sort of will go and write an episode each, but then we will also work on each other's episodes, sort of adding jokes or something. So we we work it out in a lot of detail. Um, the frustrating thing was we finished in our room literally like a couple of days before lockdown um, so we were about to go off to film and then we had to wait um, like nine months or something before we could start filming. So that was very frustrating because it was all done and ready to go. But yeah, we know we know exactly what's going to happen and we've got lots and lots of ideas for the next. Did things change during those nine months in the plots? A little bit. A l- yeah, a little bit because it's you can't help tinkering um, and tweaking if you have the time. But yeah, I mean, things do change, but I think we we always stick with the the sort of skeleton we've made of this is, you know, this is going to happen and this is going to happen and this is this person's journey. 
some things changed. So, for example, the first episode became the first two episodes because we felt after the sort of dramatic ending of season two that it needed two episodes to really explore the fallout in every different character's world. So, yeah, things like that might change. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's all pretty much set in stone by the time we finish in the writer's room. And when one of the writers comes up with, you know, little Lord Fuckleroy or you can't make a Tomlet without breaking some Greggs or my favorite of yours, I think it's yours, you little slime puppy, <laughs> which Jerry says to Robin, is like, does the writer's room just explode? <laughs> or I mean, do you, it's like a competition between these incredible lines. <laughs> yeah, we, I mean, we do enjoy that. We, the writer's room in a way is more, the story so we're really focusing and we do come up with some funny lines and jokes but it's we're really being very strict and making sure it's all about the story and exactly what happens and then once you start writing you add the jokes and then you add jokes to each other's and we do enjoy we do this thing where we add alts or alternatives to lines and you kind of get to see each other's suggestions so you know, you see oh. someone has put Little Lord something and then that might sort of inspire someone else to put, you know, so it's, it is a real little effort reference. and it is whether we're in the room together or on email, it, we do enjoy each other's jokes. It, so where did you little slime puppy <laughs> come from? <laughs> I'm trying to remember now. I mean, I love that romance in heavy quotation marks between Roman and Jerry. Um, I think we had a lot of suggestions because it was actually quite a tricky balance in that scene. To We didn't want it to be silly or to be laughing at either of them. And we wanted to be real in terms of Jerry's reaction. You know, how old would she feel? How interested how shocked you know so yeah it, she's great and Kieran's great and they've known each other for so long but really their sort of relationship yeah they worked in the theater together exactly I mean yes and the, in that brilliant film Margaret so their kind of chemistry really was what inspired the writers to think oh maybe they could have a kind of relationship because obviously Roman is so damaged that he's not capable of you know, in quotes, a normal relationship, but he sort of does crave intimacy and maybe that's the closest he can get, you know, to a sort of functioning relationship. Roman, what is it now? You know, I'm still pissed off they didn't give me any good footage. Seriously? They treated me like I'm a piece of shit. You are a piece of shit. Fuck you. I found a rough diamond out here and I want to bring him back with me. Fast track him. Also, you should build my ride, bitch. I'll email you, it's genius. No, no. You're not building a ride that you came up with on your first day of management training, Roman. Well, you should. I am an ideas fountain. You're acting like an overexcited little boy. You know, technically, I'm your fucking boss. Go to bed, Roman. Go to bed and masturbate all your ideas out. And let's see how excited you feel tomorrow. Well, maybe. Maybe I will. I mean, maybe I'll just leave you on the pillow so you can hear my brilliance cascading. Fine. I've heard plenty worse than a spoiled brat ejaculating on himself. Oh, uh, yeah? You sure about that? I could be doing it now for all you know. Well, get going. Chop, chop. <laughs> you disgusting little pig. You're pathetic. You are a revolting little worm, aren't you? 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I am. You little slime puppy. Yes. Yeah, what else am I? But I, I personally really like Roman because it seems to me he's one of the few characters who really loves people. You know, he really loves his dad. He really loves his siblings. He really loves Jerry. And I find him kind of heartbreaking. I love Roman. It's one of the most, the, when his father hits him in the, I think that's one of the most painful mm -hmm. things I've seen. Mm -hmm. And his reaction afterwards mm -hmm. is basically just. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know there's some really heartbreaking moments between him and his dad, and but he's he's completely unwavering in his love, which which is kind of tragic. And... For a family that everyone always says, "Oh, he, Logan didn't spend any time with his children," or such a, they they want to spend a lot of time <laughs> with him, and no one has really abandoned him. They're all there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they are. There's something that, and this is something we discussed in the room that there's sort of that they can never escape from their family, you know, and I think that's true, that they, whatever they do, they will be associated with that family and be thought of in those terms. So really, they're sort of in this kind of gilded cage uh, that they can never really escape from. So they don't even try, they just, they know. And in a way, there's something very sort of addictive and magnetic, and nothing is really quite as exciting as their family. And I think like any sort of abusive relationship they kind of the highs are so great that they put up with the the lows and wait for the next high and that's that's really sad too but um i was just reading yesterday actually that the text conversations and the when things come up on their computers jay smith cameron was saying that they're actually real that you have written them yes yeah so when they're looking constantly at their phones, what are they seeing? Yeah, we're, I mean, it's that's another sort of fun part of the show is we write the texts, but also all the kind of news stories in the background and the ticker tape and everything is all, but that's quite fun. There's one on there that says something like gender fluid immigrants are entering the country twice. So, that, so there's some quite <laughs> funny stuff, sort of little Easter eggs hidden. Um, but so that's all fun to write. And if someone's carrying notes from a meeting, we write all those. I mean, yeah, it's we, it, we have some fun with all the little extra bits we have to write. Yeah, the level of detail is it's real. It's real. And the, and the phone calls are real. We always make sure it's an actual phone call from the actual person. And, you know, it's all real. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've read a lot about all the material that Jesse Armstrong reads and that the writers remain everything from, you know, Roman history to Nero to Shakespeare. Um, for you personally, what has been the most uh, helpful writing this series in terms of the background material? We all sort of tried to read, you know, yeah, the stuff about some of the Redstone and the Murdochs and the Koch brothers and the Barclay brothers and, you know, some of the fun books about the Disney Wars and all you know all that kind of thing Jesse's incredibly well informed but then as you say um th there are some more obscure <laughs> inspirations and you know we have people come and talk to the room we had a fantastic historian come and talk to us about the fall of the Roman Empire and in a way that I found that kind of most helpful and most interesting because it is an empire and and just 
how to sort of look at how something can sort of decline over time and what you know the world changing and can something sort of survive all those changes and this is exactly what's happening with Waystar at the moment you know the world is changing so fast can a company that was essentially built on print sort of adapt and survive just in terms of family what can you relate to as a writer writing the Royce or can you? <laughs> luckily my family are nothing like the Royce but I think um yeah. we we sort of had various things written on the writer's room walls one was what I was just saying is about you can't escape another was the family is poisoning the world and poisoning itself we try and write with sort of those two things in mind but what I love about succession and what I really enjoy writing is you know things aren't black and white things aren't straightforward it's people and their relationships are very complicated and I think there is genuine love in that family and I think there are all kinds of dynamics between all the different siblings and the parents and cousin Greg of course and Tom who's married into the family I, I was um, saying the other day that um, <laughs> this may be because I'm British that sort of Tom is a bit like Princess Diana and he's sort of <laughs> married into this family that he will never truly be part of and they will never truly understand and they will never really consider him part of and they'll always kind of laugh at him or shun him a bit or be rude about him and then and torture and him. torture him yeah and it's not good you know it's it's making him unhealthy and it's making him suffer and then similarly you know Kendall has now gone full Meghan Markle and sort of you know separated himself from the family and and you know let's see it's so interesting isn't it that that Harry and Meghan and Kendall you know in a way by trying to separate yourself yourself you just link yourself even more and that people come obsessed with that situation and kind of won't they won't let you separate the world won't let you separate you can't escape and what about writing for these actors as, as we as viewers who have learned more and more about, you know, Jeremy Strong is such a method actor and this one. How, how have you played to their strengths? Well, as you say, they're all absolutely incredible. And um, I mean, I was too scared to speak to Brian Cox for the whole of the first season because I just kept thinking he was Logan. And I, even though I understand that actors are different from their characters, but he was just so convincing. Um, I mean, they're so brilliant. We do have scripts written, but we do also let them improvise and they're brilliant at that. And, you know, what's exciting as a writer is when you write something and it's performed exactly as you hoped it would be is absolutely thrilling. But then there's a whole other experience which you get a lot on succession, which is when you write something and it's performed not in the way you imagine, but in a some, in a way that's 10 times better than you imagined. And so that's, for example, in the season two, I wrote an episode where they are in, they have to go to the safe room because there's, they think there's someone with a gun in the building. And there's sort of two safe rooms, the kind of executive safe room and the more sort of economy class safe room. And uh, I had this idea that Greg suggests to Tom that they should have an open business relationship because he's find they're, finding they're sort of intense. You know, Tom is so put upon by the family that he kind of punches down to Greg and, and gives him quite a hard time. 
and Greg is finding that all a bit sort of claustrophobic and wants to separate himself from uh, Tom. And so I had this idea that that he should suggest this and that this would upset, you know, anger Tom so much that he pelts him with water bottles because that's what's in the room. And when I wrote it, I kind of thought, well, I hope people get that Tom is actually expressing his feelings about Shiv wanting an open marriage in this moment rather than just what Greg said, that it's triggered this whole sort of dumped again yeah difficult feelings and I hope you know and it's definitely going to be funny watching Tom throw water bottles at Greg um but then when when we filmed the scene Matthew just played it with such raw emotion and was sort of crying while he did it and it suddenly became instead of you know what I in my sort of shallow way thought oh this will be funny um became this incredibly moving scene where you just felt so deeply for Tom in that moment and so that's one of those wonderful times where you think well this isn't what I was expecting but it's so much better okay Tom hey hey Tom Tom we're good we're good we're good we're good it doesn't feel fucking good, Greg! Let's just, can we... I will not let you do this to me! I will not let go of what is mine! What, 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 what am I doing? Stop pumping! Stop! 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 Security! Guys, no, you back off! You back off! This is executive level business! Okay? No! Stop, Tom. We're friends. You're one of my best He's incredible, Matthew. Yeah. One final question about Succession. This um, season that we're into, um, what is your sort of overall thesis or vision of, of this season? That's a good question. Um, I think, you know, the first two seasons felt like we were getting to know the world and the characters and this this sort of very kind of King Lear-like setup. Um, And I think in this season, we wanted to really get to know the individuals much better and understand um, their sort of their situation and their feelings. So it didn't become, as you were saying, you can't just do, oh, who's it going to be? Is it me next? You know, I think we wanted to go much deeper with each character and as it goes on we get to see sides of them that we haven't seen before which was very exciting to write and um, I mean it's such a joy always isn't it when you get episodes where the family are together and they're you know, oh I love those episodes yeah. <laughs> your Thanksgiving episode and the, the, the family therapy is a great oh and Yes, yeah. yes. And bore on the floor. And this one, when when all the, the siblings are in Kendall's yes. child's room. Yeah, that's great. That's one. amazing. Yeah. And, yeah, so I think the, the, the last two episodes of this season are going to be something people haven't seen before and, and I think are, you know, perhaps two of the best episodes we've done and, and are really exciting. And, um, yeah, I can't wait for people to see them. 
I have not seen the last two, so I'm excited for that. I've seen up till then. But I, I want to take our last minutes here to talk about you are now showrunner of The Shrink Next Door, which just it premieres actually today, the day we're talking. Yeah. Um, and I've seen a couple and it's really different, incredible acting by a couple of actors, Will Ferrell and Paul Rudd, that I know are good. But when they really go into drama mode, you realize are thespians. I know. I yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, I. So this was a, a podcast that was really gripping and fascinating, called "The Shrink Next Door." And when I was asked to adapt it, I was very excited because, as you know, as we've spoken, I love difficult characters and and sort of find wanting to kind of show them compassion. And this was a story that I think could. It's basically a man who goes to see his psychiatrist in New York in the 80s. And over the course of 27 years, the psychiatrist takes over his business, takes over his house, takes over his life. And it, I think it would have been very easy to tackle it as sort of goody and baddie, victim and villain, you know, a bit like that other podcast, Dirty John or something, a situation where we, the viewer, know that this person is bad and we're waiting for the other person to work it out. But I didn't want to do it that way. I wanted, I sort of approached it almost as a love story because it was a relationship that lasted 27 years um, and it started off well. And along the way, it took a dark turn. And I just, I didn't, I thought it would be very easy to either Certainly when I spoke to people about the podcast, they would either say, oh, Ike, the psychiatrist, is evil or a monster, or they'd say Marty, the patient, is an idiot or gullible. And I thought, well, I don't think that's fair. I think I want to write something where we don't label or judge or blame either man. We just try, we know what happened, so let's try and work out how it happened and why it happened and what it was about these men, what they what was missing in their lives that caused this extraordinary relationship to happen. And that, you know, I really enjoyed that. So, and as you say, I mean, I love Will Ferrell. I think he's hilarious, but I had not realized what an incredible actor he is. And I, I wanted him to give a very straight performance and he really does give a very courageous, incredibly nuanced and subtle and heartbreaking performances, Marty. And similarly, you know, Paul Rudd is so often the hero. The sexiest man alive. Sexiest man alive. <laughs> so often the hero. And it was just so perfect that he played this flawed, difficult man. Um, and I wanted the viewer to sort of be in that relationship. To start off, you get swept off your feet. It's not hard when it's Paul Rudd. And then he does things that are hard to justify and alarm bells start ringing, but then he wins you around with his kind of charm and he's so irresistible. So I wanted to sort of the viewer to experience that sort of abusive relationship in a way. And, and when we were filming, it was um, not only during the pandemic, but during the election and the insurrection. And there, was, there were so many parallels with the sort of, abusive relationship that America had been in with it, its president who manipulated them and lied to them and uh, used his power in the wrong way. 
And it was so, it seemed so resonant to the story we were telling with the shrink next door. And uh, so, yeah, I hope, I think people will be surprised to see Will and Paul giving such straight performances, but I think they'll also be very excited because it's it's a really beautiful story and, and a really tragic story. I thought a lot about um, Robin Williams, um, his when he went from sort of comedian to the movies he did, yeah. you know, in the eighties that Will Ferrell did that you were suddenly like, wow, the depths that yeah. they can go, yeah. which I think is the beginning of our conversation a bit, this drama comedy yeah. aspect of it. When they're so close to each other, it's really the same feelings. Very true. Yeah. I think as long as both are rooted in truth, you know, the sort of writing comedy is as much about the jokes you leave out as the ones you keep in you know you have to make sure you're not sacrificing character or truth to a joke and I think you know whether it's Veep or Succession or The Shrink Next Door it's it's all about the the honesty and the truth of the moment whether it's funny or sad it has to feel real and and to come from the characters. Finally what is it like to take on the showrunner mantle? Yeah it was nerve-wracking actually um, having been you know, come from the only woman in the room to then being in charge. Um, you know, being British, I don't like conflict or shouting. So I was worried that um, there might be some of that. But in fact, I think in a, in a funny way, having been invisible, as it were, for so many years helped me because I just was determined that everyone would feel seen and appreciated and respected and part of the team. And yeah, it turns out if you do that, you don't need to, to do yelling or shouting or confrontation. Um, it was a wow. Yeah, it was. A, Imagine yeah, that revelation. <laughs> it was lovely. Imagine if we'd known that decades ago. <laughs> Thank you so much. You took for your time that you took with me and for this book that really meant a lot to me. And I'm I'm on pins and needles to see the end of succession oh yeah well thank you it's been lovely talking to you and as I say I'm sorry about the there's a tree being chopped down outside in a Chekhovian way and uh, I hope it hasn't been too distracting <laughs> add to the drama yeah exactly <laughs> yes. All right. thank, you. thank you so much thank you very much Thank you so much to Georgia Pritchett. Her book, My Mess is a Bit of a Life, is out now. Succession Season 3 is on HBO Max, and her new series, The Shrink Next Door, is on Apple TV+. And thank you so much for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Pop Culture Confidential wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. You've watched them in unforgettable adventures, love affairs, and tragedies. Now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories. From the makers of Death of a Rockstar and Death of a Sports Star, this is Death Ready. of a Film Star. Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs.